Greetings and welcome to the First Plus Podcast of 2008. Hello and welcome to the Plus Podcast. My name is Mark West. This week, Marion and I visited University College London's Centre for Mathematics and Physics in the Life Sciences and Experimental Biology, or COMPLEX for short. COMPLEX is UCL's Centre for Interdisciplinary Science. It brings life and medical scientists together with mathematicians, physical scientists, computer scientists and engineers to tackle the challenges arising from complexity in biology and medicine. We chatted to four students studying for their doctorate, Lewis Dartnell, Alex Stewart, Richard Allen and Trevor Graham, about the role of mathematics in life sciences with regards to topics as far-reaching as astrobiology and cancer development. We also had a group discussion on the future of collaborations between mathematicians and life scientists. So here are the four guys to introduce what they do. My name's Lewis Startnell. I'm a finishing PhD student now at UCL's Complex Department, and I've been using a mathematical model of the space radiation at Mars um, to look into astrobiology and the potential of any life that might still be surviving in the, in the surface of the Red Planet. I'm Alex Stewart. I'm just beginning the second year of my PhD in Complex, and I'm studying the evolution of transcription networks. So a transcription network is the set of interactions between genes. It's how one gene regulates the expression of another. I'm Richard Allen. I'm in my final year of my PhD, just, just entering it, and I've used math to try and understand how cells change shape. Well, hi, my name's Trevor Graham. I'm a final year PhD student now. I study cancer development. Um, in particular, I look at rare early genetic changes that happen in cancers. Well, to kick things off, we might start with Lewis. I'm quite intrigued by astrobiology because it's something of which we have no evidence for. I guess it's a purely theoretical field. What do you think about that? What are the types of things that you study? So I think it's a valid kind of first criticism of astrobiology that we claim to be looking for um, life beyond Earth but don't even know if our subject matter exists. But I think that's a criticism that probably could be levelled at many sciences in the very early stages when you're simply trying to understand the possibilities or the extent of what's feasible or reasonable to ask. So if you're talking about astrobiology, it's everything from what are the most extreme life forms on Earth and thereby, by extension, what else could you expect on places beyond Earth? What kind of geological environment do they need? What kind of, kind of astrophysics processes do they need in terms of star formation and, and planet formation? So it's, it's got lots of different elements all coming together in this overlap of, of multidisciplinary science called astrobiology, hopefully trying to um, address the question about if there is life out there, how would we go about finding it? So your, your expertise is quite wide. You'd need to have a biology background, a physics background, mathematical background. Where, do, where does the maths come into all this? So I guess you're right. You do have to be a, a jack-of-all-trades to a certain extent. I think this is true of, of all of us here as well. You have to understand a lot of maths, maybe a bit of physics and certainly some biology before you can start asking the mathematical biology questions, or, or in my case, astrobiology. In terms of the mathematics I'm using, it's, I've, I've developed a computer model, a simulation of the cosmic radiation, so incredibly highly energetic particles from outer space, so the things that are kind of thrown off by a solar flare or um, accelerated by stars exploding throughout the galaxy. These, um, even though they're tiny subatomic particles, they can pack a considerable punch, and when they start smacking into the surface of Mars, which 
doesn't have the protection of a magnetic field or thick atmosphere like we do here on, on Earth. These energetic particles trigger incredibly widespread cascades of radiation underground. Um, but no one quite understands what that radiation is like in terms of its particles, such as gamma rays or alpha particles it's made up of, what energies they've got, they've got, and therefore what its influence on any life, on any organisms, any cells that would be in the subsurface. So it's trying to combine the um, mathematics of computer model with the biology of um, studying organisms on a petri dish and a lab bench and blasting with radiation and, and see how much they can take before they shrivel up, shrivel up and die to ultimately ask how long could a, a, a microbe, a bacteria in the surface of Mars survive the radiation there. Would you like to tell us a little bit more detail about the sort of modelling that you use to, to do this? So the model itself is called a Monte Carlo simulation and essentially because there's so many different things that can happen it's, it's incredibly difficult to model um, exactly. So you ask your particle physicist to sit there with their multi-billion dollar particle accelerators smacking particles together and ask them what happens and with what probability when two things collide at very high energies. So if we're talking about a very high energy proton from the sun that smacks into a, an iron atom, let's say, in the rusty surface of Mars, what comes off, what kind of gammas come off, what kind of alpha particles comes off, what, what particle interactions happen? And you know from your particle physics and your experiments there um, with what probability different outcomes occur. So when you're simulating that, essentially you have a large number of dice um, that you throw, and with whatever number that comes up with, you can then assign that to a particular event having happened, um, depending on how likely they are in the first place. And then you advance your simulation one more step, and another interaction happens, and you throw all of your dice again and think, well, this happened rather than that, and then you advance it step by step, throwing the dice each time. That's called a, a Monte Carlo simulation after the um, famous casinos in, in Monaco. Um, some time ago, PLUS talked to an astrobiologist called Paul Davies, and he was telling us that there were some theories that life might have arrived here from somewhere else, you know, being carried with meteorites or something. What about that? So this is the idea of, of panspermia, um, which means literally in the, in the Greek life everywhere, or seeds being spread everywhere. And it's the idea that life seems to have evolved very, very, at least appeared very, very soon in the fossil record um, of Earth, very quickly after you think that the conditions for life existed here. So life either happened exceedingly quickly or didn't arise on Earth but was delivered to Earth from elsewhere, um, possibly within little bits of space rock or the meteorites. And one obvious place that they might have come from is Mars, because right back in the early solar system, Mars was very much more like Earth, with a, as far as we understand, a, a thicker atmosphere and seas and, and lakes on its surface of, of water. And the conditions for life might have been clement on Mars even before Earth. So perhaps life arose there and hitchhiked a, a lift on a, on a meteorite, blasted off the surface of Mars, and then delivered the very first organisms to Earth and kick-started evolution here. Um, and again, the, the, the cosmic radiation environment is very important for this question because, again, you've now got a bug stuck in a small piece of rock being blasted by this radiation from space. And the question is, um, how long can these microbes survive? And is that small compared to the length of time they've got to spend in space as a meteorite um, travels between the planets. And again, people have been doing a lot of mathematical modelling to answer that question. So what are your conclusions so far about the possibility of life on Mars? So the model's been finished. I'm, I'm writing my thesis. So the model's been finished and checked and validated, and I've churned through all the numbers to come up with um, some kind of answer. And some of the values that have come out, I, I looked at different situations on Mars, be it um, dry rock um, where cells might be preserved or um, thick sheets of ice where the, we can see open water ice on the surface of Mars in the polar ice claps or in frozen uh, lakes. And depending on the surface material, 
you have to, as a bug, you have to be at a certain different depth to survive for long enough before our probes can land in this location and drill beneath the surface and hopefully sample a bug that's perhaps dormant. It's not actively metabolising or going through all the kind of biochemistry of life, but is still alive that can be resuscitated by warming up. One headline, I suppose, might be if you're talking about um, water ice, my model is showing that you need to be about seven metres deep to survive for about five million years. Um, so if you're going to be trying to sample living bacteria rather than dead bacteria, which would be fundamentally exciting in its own right, if you want living bacteria, um, you need to have quite a long drill bit to get through the ice to, to sample them and bring them back to Earth for study. Any chance of life on Titan or Europa? What do you think? So as astrobiologists, you've, you've got to think... You've got to keep an open mind and consider places that aren't particularly Earth-like, but then also not be talking about fantastical possibilities that you couldn't really ever test. But two places in the solar system that astrobiologists think do have a, a good potential for alien life are Saturn's moon Titan, where it's exceedingly cold on the surface and there's no liquid water. The, the water forms the, the mountains and the rocks of the, of the surface. But there is a lot of fluid action, and this is liquid methane and ethane, so the gases in Earth's atmosphere have been cooled down so much on Titan they now flow as, as fluids and fall as rain and form clouds. Can you have some kind of viable, complex chemical network of biochemistry in ethane or methane as a solvent rather than water? If you talk about Europa, we think for various reasons there's a liquid water ocean um, beneath a thick ice, icy surface there. And in that situation, you might not even need to have particularly exotic life. You could maybe suck up the kind of life we find at the bottom of our own oceans around these um, deep underwater volcanoes and squirt them to the oceans of Europa. And they might quite happily be able to you know, put down roots there and kind of get on with surviving. move along to Trevor, who does modelling of cancer cells. Would you like to tell us a little bit more detail about the sort of modelling that you use to, to do this? So I'm interested in changes that happen in cells to turn them from being normal healthy cells into cancerous cells which can spread throughout the body. And the changes that happen are, are mutations in the DNA. So the DNA is broken into lots of bits called genes and then when you have a mutation the gene doesn't function properly. The genes are blueprint for how the cell behaves. And when those blueprints go wrong, the cell isn't built properly and um, it doesn't behave as it should and it can, it can turn into a cancer. So I have to use maths that can describe these, these mutations. And mutations are very rare, um, so it turns out that using maths to model random processes or stochastic systems is the kind of maths I do. So I make models that um, look at the sequences of lots of rare events, so the models have become... Uh, Monte Carlo models. I use, I use that kind of math to look at the random mutations and what the outcome of lots of different random mutations would be. So the key result I've been looking at so far is uh, looking at which mutations um, are particularly important for forming a cancer. So you need lots of things to go wrong in the cell for the cell to, to not behave as it should do. There's lots of processes in the body that stop cells growing and there must be because our bodies last for a very long time and they generally behave very well so there's lots of things in the body that stop cells misbehaving so to have a cancer you need lots of things to go wrong so one idea that's very popular is that one of the first changes that happens in a cell is a cell which increases the mutation rate and makes subsequent changes much more likely to happen so say you need 10 changes to happen 
the first one might increase the rate by 100 times and then the, the f later changes are, are much more likely. Which seems a very persuasive idea, so people have, have got excited about it. The only problem is that um, for the first change to go wrong, that's quite an unlikely event anyway, so it's hard to see if there's any pressure on making the first change which increases this, this rate more likely than a different change which might have some other effect on the cell which could also make the subsequent mutations more likely. So I've been making a model of how the mutation rate changes when you have a particular thing going wrong in the cell and then seeing if, if that mutation, that, that change that's happened in the cell is the one that's likely to go first. Do you look at environmental pressures and those sorts of things that might kickstart this process of cancer? So looking at environmental pressures isn't something that I, I do personally, but it's something that's very actively studied generally by, by mathematicians. So um, people are very interested in things called age instance curves, where they plot a graph of the number of people with cancer against um, how old they are. And then they can compare environmental pressures between groups of people by comparing these age incidence curves. So in the West, for example, the age incidence is much steeper, so you're more likely to get cancer when you're younger than it is in, in say, in Japan. And people assume that everyone's quite similar, so the reason must be because of, of dietary factors or the way that the way that people live. And then by maybe analysing the gradient of these these type of lines, you can start to see the particular impact of environmental factors. I was having a bit of a, a water cooler conversation the other day with a friend of mine about cancer, actually, and it's sort of coming up in old people because I guess we're not really evolved to be old and so things start to go wrong when you get old. Is this true? So can you enlighten me a little bit more about that? I think it is It is true in some ways. So um, classically, selection, which looks at taking particular genes and making them um, more common in the population. So you have a particular your genes are your blueprints, so you have some blueprints that are very successful. So there's lots of copies of those blueprints and they go on to the future. Selection often should happen before somebody reproduces. So all the things that make your blueprints good are the things that give you the opportunity to, to reproduce. So the idea of protecting your body in later life after you've reproduced isn't necessarily in sort of classical ways of thinking about it uh, evolutionary selected for. Although some people get cancer in very, very when they're very, very young and there's lots of cancers which have a family history. So there there must be some genes that have happened before people reproduce. So there's it's it's far too simple to say that cancer is just a disease of old age. Okay, Richard, uh, you're next in the firing line. Tell me more about what you do with regards to cell shape modelling. So I'm modelling a particular type of cell, essentially, called an endothelial cell. And endothelial cells line everyone's arteries. They're, well, they're a single layer, and you can think of them a bit like a filter. They, they filter out the things which you need from the bloodstream and block the things that you don't. And so they're in this single layer, and they all tessellate very nicely. But in some cases, the gaps between them don't filter out the things they should, and you get... A deposition of things that you don't want below this layer um, and that's that process is called atherosclerosis and that's actually the leading cause of death in the western world because it leads to things like heart disease and stroke um, and blood clots and so on so the when they go wrong you get this build up of this fatty sort of plaque and you may have seen pictures of these if they try and scare people scare you about not smoking and things like that that's exactly what they are sort of these white streaks in your arteries so they build up and then they they can burst into your bloodstream which is obviously highly undesirable. In most cases though um, your arteries can cope with a little a few lumps and mo everyone will have them it's just that if you're in certain conditions certain risk factors then you do get more clinical com complications. Where my research comes in 
is that these plaques, these fatty lumps, are located in regions, co correlated in regions of your bloodstream where the flow of the blood is, is turbulent, so where your arteries bifurcate, for example. And the argument goes that the cells don't know how to tessellate in this region because they, in nice regions where the flow is nice and laminar and smooth, they, they uh, interpret the force that the fluid puts on them and they stretch out in the direction of that flow. So my modelling comes in and trying to understand how the cells achieve this change of shape where they go from sort of a, a random orientation to when you, after a certain time when you flow fluid over them, they stretch out in the direction of the flow. From a modelling point of view, it's quite an interesting problem because, like many problems in biology, it's got several different processes to it that go on and they're all integrated and they all interact with each other. You can think about breaking it down into these separate components and looking at those and trying to understand them, but you can't really understand the whole process without looking at how these, pro how these components interact. And they interact in a sort of complex way, so you can't really predict the outcome just from looking at them in a sort of linear fashion. I have a sort of wide range of maths to cover these wide range of components. Um, I've got a model of the fluid flow that flows over the cell, so fluid dynamics, um, differential equations. It's, it's sort of like a model that um, Alan Turing came up with in the 50s, one of the first mathematical biologists. And then also I've got a model on a much smaller scale, which is on the scale of polymers of the cytoskeleton. Now the cytoskeleton is um, the skeleton of a cell, much like our own in the sense that it gives the cell structure, but different to the skeleton that we're familiar with, it's far more flexible and dynamic and you have certain polymers which are all the time growing and shrinking, but overall you get a stable structure and it's this size skeleton that the cell changes to change shape. Um, so to model that on a small scale, I use something like called a Brownian dynamic model, where essentially you replace all your proteins by little spheres in your simulation and they, they bounce around with some Brownian motion. And if they get in certain contact at the right angle, then they, they bind together with some probability, essentially. I'm trying to integrate all of these different models in something called a cellular POTS model, which is, it's like a cellular automaton, if you're familiar with that. And in a cellular automaton, you, you split up your space into discrete points, and you can you label them with a state, either say one or zero, and you, you switch from being a one to a zero, or a zero to a one, depending on what your neighbor's states are around you. In a cellular POTS model, it's a bit like that, in that you, you split up your space and you have different states in each of your discrete areas, but your rules for switching are governed on your neighbors, but also on some global sort of property. That's sort of a way of integrating these different models because that's how you, or how I plan to couple them all together. I've convinced myself it's gonna work. That's, that's one thing, <laughs> which is important. <laughs>me a little bit more about transcription networks. Um, okay, so transcription networks are essentially, um, if you think of the genome as a blueprint, as we've um, been saying, then the transcription network is the way the components are wired up. So you think of, we tend to think of genes perhaps um, often as you have a gene for this or a gene for that, but um, what I'm talking about when I talk about a gene is just um, a sequence of DNA which codes for a particular protein. Now genes interact in a lot of ways, not just through transcription networks, but the most direct way that they interact is one gene is transcribed, so it produces its protein. That protein goes to another gene and physically attaches itself to the DNA, which either makes transcription of that gene more likely or less likely. So it's kind of like um, a logic diagram for how the whole genome works. So you have this logic diagram, and so you have this horrendous reverse engineering problem because you want to know 
how all the different components go together to make an organism. Obviously, that's incredibly difficult to do. You ca if somebody gives you a laptop and a logic diagram for how the components work and say, okay, so explain that from that, you're not going to be able to do it. But if you take that analogy of um, logic di diagram for something like a laptop, there are probably a million ways that you could wire up components and produce the same results. So if you're designing something, you have certain principles like, um, I don't know, economy or lack of cost, less components, maybe you want it to be robust to one thing failing, so you build in certain things. So what you want to find out is whether there are similar principles that go into building a transcription network. If you can define such principles, if you can say say that um, the genome has to be robust or the genome has to use as few um, different connections as possible or something like that, then you can begin to tackle this reverse engineering problem. But what you can also do, if you understand the mutational process, is um, perhaps begin to make qualitative predictions about how these things might change with evolution. Well, yes, tell me, tell me a little bit more about the maths involved. What I use is uh, Markov models. What, what I've been looking at um, mostly up till now is the network as a whole. Um, net, um, networks as a whole have certain properties, such as their degree distribution is the most commonly talked about one. You say each gene is connected to a number of other genes in the network. The number of genes it's connected to, or actually it's directed, so the number of genes which have connections going out from it is its out degree, and the number of edges it has coming in, the number of connections it has coming in is its in degree. Then you can plot the number of genes with different out degree versus the degree, so, and then you get some distribution. This distribution tells you a sort of, gives you a sort of global feel for how the, the network is organised. Very commonly, um, real-world networks, uh, networks occur not just in transcription networks, there are all kinds of networks, social networks, lots of things. Very commonly, they have um, a power law distribution, which means that most genes, if, if we talk about the transcription network, are connected to only a few, whilst a few are connected to very many, so you get what are called hubs. And, um, yeah, physicists love these because power laws suggest um, universality classes. And if you ha a universality class means that essentially you can ignore the details of the problem. And that's great because it's extremely complicated and you like to ignore the details of the problem. So what I've been looking at is the trans uh, transcription networks have this interesting property that they have a power law out degree, but they have an exponential in degree. So it's very narrow. Um, and I've been using a Markov model to um, look at how the different rates of mutations, because you can have several kinds of mutation, affect um, the different degree distributions you get to see if you can make predictions about what rates these mutational versus must have happened during evolution to give rise to this network. So why do they have a power law out degree and an exponential in degree? What, what does that mean or where does that come from? Yeah. Well, I think that's an extremely interesting question. And I don't really have a clear answer, but you can hypothesize that the in degree, the number of genes which are regulating you, so how many the different things come together to regulate your expression, there's a kind of, well, what, what people say is there's, there's a kind of, uh, you can't have too many doing it, because if you need zillions of things to come together to work, it's pretty hard for it to actually work consistently. Whereas that's not true for the out degree, because it doesn't matter how many, if you, if you produce a lot of protein, it all goes off to different ones, and that's fine. That could be it. That's a physical explanation. It could simply be the result of mutations happening at different rates. It gives rise to this, and it has nothing to do with function whatsoever. It could be an artifact, but it's an interesting artifact because if that's so, it tells you something about what's happened.
Okay, so here we have one person who calls himself a mathematician, another person who calls himself a former mathematician who's now switched to biology, a biologist and a physicist. Um, but obviously all of you use quite a lot of mathematics and you do a lot of theoretical work. So what do you think about the balance, the interplay between theoretical work and actual experiment? Yeah, I'm, I'm in that class of I don't do any experiments myself, so if any data I use is someone else's. I think it's, it's tremendously important in biology because if it wasn't for experiments, you wouldn't, you know, it would be a, a, might be an interesting exercise in maths, but you wouldn't have any application really. I just know that I, I never had any skill in doing experiments. I would just kill lots of cells. Um, so it's probably best for other people to do it. <laughs> I think an important point on that as well is if, like I mentioned earlier about being a jack of all trades and master of none, this multidisciplinary science is all very great. If it's true that someone who does both the theoretical work and the experimental work themselves is in fact better or comes up with more innovative ideas than a mathematician and a biologist in a team working together. The department of UCL that we all work at, at Complex, is part of this growing trend to have interdisciplinary scientists, so train mathematicians, physicists and biologists that we have here in each other's disciplines. And I think it's more, more of an issue being able to appreciate or at least understand each other's discipline, being able to speak the lingo and the jargon, rather than being, you know, me being a mathematician as good as Trev or someone else being a, a great um, experimentalist. You need to know what is possible and what's not possible and what's the best approach to take to a problem but not necessarily do the kind of frontline research yourself, but seek someone else once you've worked out what it is you need done. And does the mathematics remain mathematics, or does it become a tool simply? I think the maths and the biology complement each other a lot. So doing, doing biology experiments is, is hard, and it takes a long time. And if you can make a mathematical model, then you can um, help direct the experiments and make sure they're focused on measuring the most important thing or looking at the most important behaviour that, that comes out of it. So... In that sense, they're a tool for driving experiments, but also once you have some, some data, the, the maths can develop in its own right and can um, be stimulated by the, the data you're trying to describe and you can end up developing new kinds of mathematics. Within mathematics, there's a kind of um, natural selection almost in the sense that mathematicians will naturally gravitate to things that are beautiful. I mean, nobody's going to accept a proof that is horribly messy and terrible. I mean, it's very unsatisfactory. So is there something where when you do the mathematics of a physical process, this kind of inbuilt beauty or simplicity will guide you towards an answer in the science that you're looking. I think that the idea of parsimony appeals to me as a mathematician, so you, you, you want the simplest, most elegant explanation you can, partly because mathematicians are lazy generally, um, and partly because what you say, it, it's a, if it's attractive, then in some, in some sense it's more worthwhile, even if it's not necessarily t so worthwhile in the sense of describing your biology. So I, I certainly look for things that, in that sense, in that regard, looking at, at simple explanations that can, that, that are attractive in the sort of mathematical sense of the word. Um, but then you you also get big in this area. You get sort of big science projects where people model large networks of things with just large systems of ODEs, and it's sort of a you know massive hammer to crack the biological nut. Has the role of mathematics changed very much in this in the other sciences like biology? and chemistry, say, over the last decades? Yeah, so I, I think that the, the biggest change is has come about because of the increasing power of computers and you can numerically solve things. Um, you can do things now, you can find solutions to things now, which, you, for example, large systems of ODs, you just couldn't do that, um, I would guess, 20, 10, 20 years ago. I don't know the time scale. Um, so it's moved, I think there's been a move away to some extent from sort of just pure analytic 
I think recently in biology as well, there's been an explosion of information. So, for example, um, we know what the sequence of um, human DNA is nowadays, and we have this enormous long list of, of the different bases. Um, so that's a huge amount of information, and maths is playing an important role in interpreting what it actually means. So you, you know what the blueprints are, but you need to figure out how they fit together to actually build uh, a body. One thing we haven't mentioned is um, that actually in this area your modelling on a computer can actually drive new experiments in the sense of you could see some behaviour in your simulation that maybe you weren't expecting and that could suggest an experiment to enlighten you why whether your model's right or wrong or and it could suggest totally different experiments that maybe experimentalists haven't thought of, of, of doing. I was also going to say actually that I think there's a slight danger though with um, this ability to run large numerical simulations um, in that it it can make you lazy that you don't have it you lose the drive to um, be elegant or be simple or to to take things out of your model and, and get to the real roots of it but it rather to hammer in thousands of ODs and reproduce exactly what you see but you have so many parameters you learn nothing I think more general as well it's the if you don't appreciate the process or the tool as you're saying Marion if you don't appreciate how it works and just treat it as a black box you can very easily start applying it inappropriately and I think we've all got a kind of favourite example where stats are used incredibly inappropriately in papers and they don't quite understand what they're doing they've um, got I know some stats package they've got two variables they want to compare against each other so they just click on whichever menu option seems about right to them come up with a p-value that's close to one and think there you go but it being I've, I've kind of demonstrated whatever I want to demonstrate. So I think it's not, it's not a problem about kind of modelling itself, it's more the kind of misuse or inappropriate use of, of any technique or any mathematical technique as well. It's another argument for interdisciplinary work, really, to make sure that you ask the experts. Yeah. So how widespread is it amongst um, scientists that there is a lack of understanding of probability and statistics? <laughs> <laughs> that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of the plus podcast thank you for joining us if you'd like any more information on this podcast on maths news and views or you'd like to contact us please visit our website at plus.maths.org that's plus.maths.org my name's mark west i'll see you next time on the plus podcast